how am I supposed to process my white Christian friends who support Donald Trump? So that was a question I was asked by a good friend of mine, a black pastor just outside of Washington, D.C., and we were together in a hotel with another mutual friend. And before we went too far into the conversation, it was obvious that this was a this was tapping into a vein that needed to be talked about. And so we pressed record. And what you're going to hear is a very raw and real conversation with two of my very best friends. It's not in any way intended to be a political statement or endorsement one way or another, but it is meant to try to engage with and acknowledge what's going on in our country right now. And a lot of division, a lot of pain, some people who are very excited, some people that are holding their nose, um, but overall happy, and some people that are distraught, and, and maybe every possible category along that spectrum you'd find somewhere in our country right now. But the reason this question really stuck out to me was because it was personal. It wasn't about political ideology, um, and it wasn't vindictive. It was an honest question from someone seeking the perspective of someone different, trying to understand and empathize with another. And it came from a man that I really deeply respect. And so what you're about to hear is that conversation. And I hope that it is something that uh, you enjoy listening to. But I really hope that it's something that gives us all encouragement, that we can have difficult conversations about difficult topics, that friendships and bring brothers and sisters, even in Christ, is so incredibly important in our world. And there's so many opportunities we have to undervalue that or to throw that away. But I think it's one of the most critical and important things that we have as followers of Jesus is the experiences and stories of people who have come from different places than us. And even our experiences and our stories that we have to share and enrich people who, who may not be very much like who we are. So I, uh, I share this conversation with you, knowing that for some it might stir up a whole range of emotions and opinions, but this podcast was never put out in fear of addressing real stuff. And anytime I get people that I deeply love and respect in a room and get to talk through something challenging like this, I find it a great privilege to be able to extend this conversation on a broader level to people who who may not have the privilege of having such extraordinary friends like I do. So with all that being said, I'd love to introduce you to Daniel Stevens, a good friend of mine and pastor in Midland, Texas, and Donnell Jones, a good friend of mine and pastor just outside of Washington, DC. Daniel's white and Donnell is black, and I am also very white, and all three of us came from very different upbringings and backgrounds in a lot of different ways and are trying to process together in this conversation the national and spiritual and political climate that we're in. And I think you're going to be really moved by some of our stories of our past that have shaped us, but in particular how Christ has redeemed all of us and how we deeply desire to love not only him, but to love one another and walk together in unity. So without uh, saying any more, um, 
Yeah, welcome to the conversation, you guys, on this episode of Church in the Wild. Donnell Jones, welcome to the podcast. Man, good to be here. I also have Daniel Stevens over here joining me, first time on the podcast. Two podcast first timers. Glad to be here. This is exciting. Yes. One might call you podcast virgins. Yeah, might. <laughs> <laughs> that would be appropriate. <laughs> appropriate. Yes. Guilty. Uh, we, uh, we're actually here in Orlando, Florida, hanging out with some other pastors in our Every Nation Church family and having lots of uh, good times and talking about all kinds of strategically significant topics and so forth. And probably one of the best aspects of getting together here on a regular basis is all the offline conversations that we get to have. And you two being obviously some of my favorite humans in our whole new movement, we found ourselves sitting around the living room of, of one of our hotel rooms, getting into some pretty interesting conversations. And so we, uh, we're just going to jump right back into that and see, see where we go. Does that sound all right? Great. That's great. All right. Donnell, you posed a question the other day. Yeah. That was a very interesting question and led us down some very interesting roads. You mind uh, reposing that question? Not at all. I really would love to hear your thoughts about how an African American, man or woman, Donnell is black for anyone that didn't pick that up. Yeah. And, and Daniel Stevens, we're not quite sure. I'm, I'm what ethnicity? He's I'd kind of an exotic Victorian, is what many would say. <laughs> <laughs> Victorian. It's 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 a deeper level of white. <laughs> there's transparent. Yeah. <laughs> there's Victorian. Yeah, yeah. All right. Anyway, continue. So my question is in light of the uh, the present day reality of the intensity in America. Um, we have a president, Donald Trump, and there's so much just that's been unearthed um, in our society. And so one of the questions I have in light of what is common to everyone is, how does a black man, how does a black woman who does not support Trump mm -hmm. relate with men or women, particularly those who are of faith, who do support Trump right. and are not black. Yeah. So how does a black man relate to his friend? How does a black woman relate to her friend who is not black, presumably white? How do you relate with them when you learn that they are supporters of Trump who it would be hard to say that some of his comments, some of his statements about people of ethnicity are in favor of blacks. So how do I, as right. a black man, do relationship with a white man, both of us believers, and the black man doesn't support Trump, but the white man does? Yeah. It's an incredible question. It was a really incredible question. And it, it like it's on a couple of different levels. I mean, the first level is just the general question is how does you know, black America relate to white America yeah. generally or individually? Uh, obviously, the vast majority of African Americans did not vote for Trump, um, and a good, you know, a, a more of a majority of white people did. But it gets even more interesting when you throw the Christian equation into it, right? Uh, because there's already, you know, within the, certainly the conservative evangelical Christian brand, um, the idea that we are more than just strangers, you know, or, or common you know, citizens, but we're actually brothers and sisters. Yeah. Um, and there's a very, very different viewpoint 
on Donald Trump. Yeah, for sure. Uh, whether you're for or against them, we have very different reasons of yeah. maybe being for or against them. Um, and I just thought it was fascinating. Uh, Daniel, what what thoughts do you, do you want to? Yeah, pitch no, in for that? I think it's a great question because I think there is um, so many so many nuances to that question. There's the um, the assumption of what Trump's view on race is uh, that is, I think, colored by a lot in large degree by his statements that he's made and some of his policies he's made mm -hmm. uh, regarding the wall. You know, as we've talked about those, this kind of set up, if you will, his uh, what people might perceive as a racism coming from him because of some of his policy positions um, and, and have spurred been spurred on by other comments and things that have been said. Uh, even recently, then, even yeah. recently. Yeah, right. Right. Um, and so I, I just, you know, as we were talking the other day about this, I, I think uh, one of the things that has been really helpful for me in navigating um, uh, this issue has been Stephen Mansfield's book, Cho mm -hmm. uh, Choosing Trump, that really goes into a little more detail on. Uh, why white evangelicals voted for Trump, many of them holding their nose. Others uh, just kind of full-on embraced him, which was unique. And, yeah. uh, and how, that, how, that, uh, is, how that was done in the light of the last administration. And I think Mansfield has some really interesting insights and, and pretty neutral view on that. But that kind of that goes a little further away from that conversation, but I think gets to the heart of some of it. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I grew up in a very conservative politically home. Um, it wasn't a Christian home, but it was a very conservative Republican home. Um, and so, like, for me, that's a, that's a bit of a backdrop. I mean, I've, I've had all kinds of other influences now on my kind of contemporary view on politics and kind of where I land on, on things. Um, and it's a, it's a really tough question for me to answer because on, on one level, I think I really identify with you and where you're coming from. And it... And it it's baffling to me the level of support I feel like he received from from people who call themselves Christians, and not just people that call themselves Christians. There's some really legitimate Christian leaders that threw in support with them. Um, yeah, I was so it was hard for me to kind of understand. I saw you know I saw someone post a you know a blog the other day, and it was a it was a Christian leader, and he he was kind of the hold your nose for Trump sort of guy, and he posted like, well, here's the top ten you know, reasons why I voted for Trump now in hindsight after what he's accomplished already in his presidency. And he listed 10 things that Trump had done that haven't necessarily made the news, um, weren't necessarily, you know, you know, tweetable kind of moments, but they're, you know, appointment of judges, various policies, whether they're related to abortion or pro-life issues or whatever else, some of them relatively innocuous, some of them more significant, but all of them were, they, they were very favorable for, and all of them would have been contrasted with a very different direction had, it, had Hillary Clinton, for example, had, had come into office. And so there was, a, there was a justification of the, almost the, the means of Trump justifies the ends of the politics. And there's almost, you know, for some people, I think there's an acknowledgement of the racial tension. And I, but I just think for a lot of white Americans, there's an ignorance of that because I, you know, I've just noticed this, you know, in my own life, uh, that I have to be, be in intentional community and relationships with people that are not like me, especially people of color, because I don't automatic, I don't have this instant category in my brain that comes up of, a white identification, whereas I think minorities do have more of a collective mindset. And I think we, I think you could argue that because, you know, white is majority culture or whatever, that 
it's, it's a bit of a privilege to not have to think like that, or, and, and maybe we do think like that, but it's more subconscious, and I think those could be fair arguments to be made. Um, but I, I think that's another reason maybe to give a little bit of grace, you know, to at least begin a conversation rather than just being angry, caricature, hate, despise the other. Sure. I, I'm curious, Donnell, when you ask that question, um, you know, uh, about how's a, how's a brother to feel when a, his white friend votes for Trump? Yeah. Could you describe that a little more? Like, how does a brother? Yeah, seriously. How do, how do you be, feel when you, you have somebody close to you and you uh, explain your perspective on that? Or maybe, maybe an African-American's perspective on that. Yeah. I think with regard to the person who serves our nation, there's this expectation that this person is a leader, the leader of the free world. So there's a, there's an expectation that this person represents all the people Mm -hmm. of the United States of America. So to denigrate any people who you are intended to represent seems to be contrary to the function. Um, and so if you look at president Trump, and you look at the policies, you listen to the statements, for example, in Charlottesville, Virginia, that was clearly an instance where there was an opportunity to yeah. really denounce what that was about. Um, it was about one of the clearest cut moments. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of grayer situations. Yep. But when you have Tiki yeah. Torch carrying, yep. you know, neo-Nazis or whatever. Yep. So clear, that was a moment. That was an opportunity. clear opportunity yeah. to yeah. denounce it. So yeah. the response at that moment was, well, there's problems on both sides. Or, right. And so it's, it's not that the statement there's problems on both sides needs to be minimized. There was violence on both sides for sure. Right. Yeah. It's that the opportunity to denounce something yes. that as a nation we should hold as being absolutely un- unacceptable yes. was missed, either intentionally or recklessly. It was missed. And so it, it, when you hear that in the backdrop of... American history, slavery. Um, uh, there's an author who wrote a book called Long Shadows, which talks about how nations deal with their past and makes the point that America has not done a good job of dealing with our past in terms of the healing that needs to come from that. So as a people who want to move toward healing, move toward reconciliation, and that, especially within the church. So uh, you look at President Trump and go, okay, that's just one individual, right? All right, fine. Even if you don't have an even if you kind of go, okay, we feel like uh, he doesn't reflect what we think is the heart, but my brother who's in Christ, what level of insensitivity might there be in you that you could vote for someone that a black person would be completely saying, I I find it offensive Mm -hmm. that um, my ethnicity, uh, who I am as a black man, who we are as a people, part of this nation, sharing in this nation, it's offensive that someone who would lead that nation would marginalize us and say statements or miss moments. So, okay, I go, all right, I, I can deal with that. That's what the president said. But you, my brother, who we kind of go, wait a minute, Paul made very clear in Ephesians about Jews and Gentiles and reconciliation and how we're one in Christ. So mm-hmm. if you, my white brother, and me, a black brother, we're one in Christ, yeah. how do you then support a leader who stands seemingly and opposed to what we're about. Yeah. How do you do that? And if and 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 not just that you support the leader, but what does that say about 
are we as far as long as I think we are? Mm-hmm. Uh, or is there, what level of sensitivity might there be that I now not reacting, but go, here's an opportunity for me to maybe bring something to the attention of my brothers and sisters. Say, you know what? Are you aware of this, of how that statement is inflammatory, how it's, yeah. it's oppressive and how it's, so when you support that person, do you also support those comments and thoughts? And if you don't, then help me. Yeah, there seems to be a, a wide lack of perception um, of how his comments are perceived right. outside of your own life experience, right. for sure. I think that's extremely fair to say. And um, I think the attitude that you're coming from is not the universal attitude, because right now you're having the people that are just angry and mad and other people that are actually wanting to bridge, build bridges and reconcile. And that's a whole different level of ball game right now. But there's plenty of people that are not that are not up for that at the moment, like right. on, on both sides. Like they're just no, forget it. Like this is it. We're obviously on two different planets. This isn't going to work. Let's just go do our own things. Um, but it sure seems like from a Christian standpoint, we don't have that option. Right. I think it's also, though, and this is a part of our conversation, Donnell, like, you know, I think geography and where you live has to do with your worldview and perspective That's as right. well. So, uh, you know, that's why when you look at a electoral map or a who voted for who, sometimes there really is overwhelming uh, majorities for certain candidates or certain people in certain areas. Um, is I think there are some unique things to where you grow up. So you grew up in Washington D.C. Donnell. I grew up. You grew up in, in Seth and pretty in much Oregon, in Oregon, North, yeah, Corvallis. Yeah, for the most part. I grew up in in Texas, and not only in Texas, in in West Texas. Uh, literally, grow uh, my, where I live now is the home of two George W. Bush and George Bush Sr. Like this is this is the their, their home, the home of conservatism. Uh, there's not a lot of African-Americans uh, uh, demographic-wise. So it's just it's more Hispanic right. and white in our demographics. Uh, not that they're not there, but it's just it's it's a different makeup. So there's a, a group of people that feel like, hey, I'm not racist. I'm not, I'm not. So race in their mind, whether they are racist or not, is another issue, really. Uh, and that could be debated <laughs> in many ways. Uh, but for them, the race issue just isn't front of mind mm-hmm. because they're not, it's not in front of them every day, as opposed to living in Washington D.C., where you're dealing with, with the 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 living embodiment of of diversity every day, the way you might be in your city. So, because that's not front of mind to them, other things might be front of mind politically that would draw them to vote for someone. Uh, that you would say, how in the world could you vote for that person? It's like, right. well, because that issue is so back they of come mind from for different them. worlds, it's not front of mind yeah, because. Sure. Um, the, the racism isn't just a isn't a daily issue for them, um, and I think that might be a reason that that would yeah, that would reason. explain some of that. I feel like my experience in Corvallis was so unique. I mean, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of guys that come out of Corvallis to play Division One One athletics, not a ton. Um, probably even fewer that you know actually stay in Corvallis to play Division One athletics. I played for Oregon State, and so growing up in a predominantly white everything, very few African Americans. Um, and then, but experiencing, you know, you know, at least a small handful of African-Americans just within my athletic experience growing up. And, uh, 
So at least having some exposure, but then going to play at Oregon State, where now half the locker room, at least, is not just not just black, but from inner cities, you know, not just from Oregon, you know, areas, but from really outside areas. And it was really such an eye-opening experience growing up in a city and then almost experience an entirely different city through the eyes of someone totally not like me. It forced me to view the police in a different way. It forced me to view even the way people got along together in a very different way. And it, it forced me to have all those encounters in ways that I don't think anyone else growing up, because they're just, you know, they're segregated for all intensive purposes, you know? Um, you Like people of color are just, they're kind of in their own lane and doing their, their own thing. And, you know, unless you were on the football team or in the athletic arena, you weren't gonna be around. Um, a whole lot, a whole lot of people like that, let alone getting them, or, you know, the chance to really freely be able to express themselves and their culture and everything yeah. else. Because I think there's a difference when the, it's just the one or two black guys in your class or in your neighborhood, you know, um, there's a bit of a duality that uh, they would have, they kind of have to speak the language, you know, of majority culture. And then there's a way that they interact when they're not a part of that. And I don't think it's fake. Um, but it's different. It's unique. And I don't think white people ever, in that sense, oftentimes get to see what the most natural kind of cultural kind of personal comfort levels looks like when they're just being themselves. I don't think we get to see that. I don't think we're, we're privy to that very often. Yeah. Um, there's a book called The Invisible Man. And so I think part of what you're expressing um, is that idea that in the minds of many, not all, but many in white America, um, blacks are, to some extent, their experience, because it's not shared. Mm -hmm. um, it is not necessarily understood, almost to the point of just, as a people, they're invisible with respect to the concerns that they are raising. Um, I grew up in the heart of Washington, D.C. Um, my parents um, separated when I was three, uh, divorced when I was five. Um, my father died by the time I was nine years of age. And I grew up in public elementary schools. And by the time I was in fifth grade, um, my mom had taken steps because she wanted us to have the best education possible. She actually wrote a letter to the superintendent of schools requesting permission to attend a school in upper northwest DC that was predominantly white. And the response came back saying, no, you need to remain in your, your jurisdiction. Um, my mom is very good friends with a coworker, a white woman, who lived in the same jurisdiction of the school that my mom desired us to attend. And this coworker friend said to my mom, listen, um, why don't you use my address? And my mom thought about it. Hmm. And I'm not saying it's right. But there was something in Moses' mama that said, uh, mm -hmm. I know what the king's uh, <laughs> edict <laughs> is, but not for my son. And so uh, we used that address, and we gained admission to the school. And I'll never forget uh, the principal of the school at that time, a uh, white woman. Uh, we brought into her office, and my brother, Mike, and I were sitting on either side of my mom. And the principal said, all right, um, you're here at the school. And um, I'm looking at your grades, and I see your A students coming from the inner city schools. Of course, you realize those grades are going to drop here. You won't wow. be able to. She told you that this is. Yep. You can full out expect. Yes. You will. You you will. Yeah. Perform so, less than you did at your yeah. previous school. Yeah. It was it was pretty 
pretty amazing. I mean, you know, I'm 10 years of age. My brother's like seven, and the the principal of the school is saying, you guys basically aren't going to be able to do well here. Um, and she looked my mom right in the eyes and said that. And wow. I thought, to, looking back, I thought, gosh, you said it to my mom, and you said it in the presence of her children. Not very yeah, encouraging. Yeah, that's right. But we, we got to the school, and um, she, the principal, kind of, followed us, um, interrogated my brother. She saw us catching the bus um, after school. I didn't know she was watching. I'm not sure where she was. She was, <laughs> she was stalking you to see where you'd actually walk home to, whether or not it was the address you had posted or exactly. somewhere else. Yeah. And when she realized we weren't walking home to the address, she, she followed us and saw us get on the bus. And then she, she pulled my brother into the office and said, I saw you catch the bus. Now, how old was your brother, did you say? He was probably seven. Oh, my goodness. So where where were you catching the bus to and and yeah it's it's really intense because when you're 10 and 7 years of age and you're going to a school and there's just a handful of blacks you are two of four maybe blacks in the entire school and the principal says you're not going to do well here and secondly why didn't I see you walk home why did I see you catch a bus and you ask that of a 7 year old who's been told to memorize an address so already you feel like you know you you got this secret you really live still in the hood in the inner city, but you've got to pretend like you live within walking distance of the school. And so a little brother with tears saying, we're going to see my grandmother, right? And, and my brother tells me, and we tell my mom. And so my mom has come back to the school and said, I don't understand. If you have any questions about her address or if you need to visit or something, why don't you just speak to me? Why are you asking my children this? Hmm. And so you, you, you pretty much learn uh, you're not wanted in this place. So there's that sense that even from childhood, you're growing up in a culture where, as a black person, you're wanting to pursue academic excellence like everybody else, right. and yet there's a principal here who's making it hard. So my yeah. first teacher was British, and I was the only black in my class, and there was no Cosby show in those days. Yeah, just, this was like 19, mid-1970s. Yep, so there's good times. Yeah. So there are all these stereotypes that are firmly enmeshed in our culture. You're coming out of the 60s where a black can't even stay at a certain hotel, where there are covenants that say you can't purchase a certain home in a neighborhood. So this is, the, this is what is embedded in our culture. This right. is where blacks live. So when a white person says, I'm not sure what the problem is. But this isn't ancient <laughs> history. Right. Like, Donnell, you're not that old. No. <laughs> just, this, is in, this is in my <laughs> lifetime. This is in my yeah, lifetime. What That's effect right. did that have on you, Donnell? Like, how did you deal with that yeah, sense question. of secrecy? There's a sense of white people are better. That's the underlying thing. Um, it's really odd for me because when I went to that all-white school, coming from a, a home where I didn't have a dad, and you know, it was, it was a challenge. There was times we were on welfare uh, for a couple of years, and it was really hard for mom uh, raising two boys. So you go to that place, and because you feel less than, you feel like you have to act a certain way, because because you you've got to learn the king's English. You've got to, but you still go back to the neighborhood where your best friends are. Ray Ray, stinky, you know. I love uh, Ray Ray. Yeah, and you know. Stinky. One of my friends, he just, <laughs> some of my friends were really smart. Some of them weren't. One guy, you know, uh, Pookie Ray, he's like, when were you born? Summer. No, what month? I said summer, right? <laughs> and you don't want to get into a fight. He's like, you don't want to get in a fight fine. with Pookie, man. Today, a season will be a that. month, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I had to learn how to live in two worlds. Right. And that was very hard. I have to live in the world where in the inner city, there's deprivation, there's all these challenges, 
Um, and yet I have to go to a school where I have the perception that every white family here is, has affluence, has a mom and a dad, has a Jaguar, has a big house. And that probably wasn't true of everybody in that school, but that's the image in my mind. Mm. So I'm the kid in the school, me and my brother, who are less than. And we don't, we don't have a house in this neighborhood. We have to pretend like we do. We have to pretend like everything in this world in order to be educating this world. So I'm living a dual life. And you think to yourself, yeah. if ever the day comes where I am standing with one of my white classmates from my elementary school and one of my black friends from my neighborhood, and I have to speak to both of them, I don't know who I'm supposed to be at this moment. Am I the person that Ray Ray knows or am I the place, person that John knows? Yeah. And that's really hard growing up in society that way. So when you, when you become an adult and you're a Christian and you're following God and you just realize these friends in my white school have no idea, but do my brothers and sisters in Christ have an idea? Is there a level of sensitivity? Yeah. And if not, how do I engage? Your expectations are higher for them, is that what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. Yeah. How do I engage in a meaningful conversation that goes more than five minutes and we don't walk away from the table? And I said, let this be a moment where you hear some of my story, where I hear some of your story. And even though you may not understand or, or have that experience, there can become an awareness and a level of sensitivity that helps you in your world where you live right now. I remember, Seth, when the um, first time I had Donnell out to Texas to, oh, yeah. uh, to preach. It was me. a setup. Would you, <laughs> could, would you tell that story of your first visit to the hometown of George W. Bush? Midland, Odessa. This was not my first time to Texas. It was my first time to Midland, Odessa. Which is a whole nother yeah. level of experience. Mecca is what many people, <laughs> many people call it. Mecca and or right. heaven. But go ahead. Pat. So as you've talked about home of George W. Bush and, and basically this is not just Texas. This is Republican country. Now there's a few of them. Yeah, quite a few. <laughs> So this is a moment where, I tell Daniel, you set me up. It is the first time in American history that we have elected a black president. The Thursday that you came in on that Saturday. Yeah. yeah. So the day that it was announced, we now had President Barack Obama mm -hmm. and our nation just responded to that whole moment. It was just history. Yeah. I was scheduled to preach at his church that coming Sunday. Did you do that on purpose? Just for I, I did not, but divine providence. <laughs> so it's the first time he ever had a black man in his pulpit. Yeah. First time? First time. Oh, man. And so he introduces me as Donnell Jones from Washington, D.C. Now, to say Washington, D.C. Oh. on the Sunday following the election. You did set him up in the, home, <laughs> uh, in the hometown of George W. Bush. <laughs> and so they basically thought, oh, wait, did you send a representative from President Barack's office? They thought you were Obama. They thought, like, my whole congregation, like, he brought the president here. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, was, it was a great moment to, uh, to be there with Daniel and to speak to his church, uh, which is not predominantly black. Um, and for that to happen. And I, I think there has to be, even as we're talking now, we're all friends. I mean, Seth is white, Daniel's white, I'm black. We have, we have a deep friendship. We love each other. Uh, and see, one of the things of the process of, of my life <clears throat> that allowed me to come and speak to your church and not see it as just speaking to a white church, but speaking to men and women who are there to worship God, 
is the process that you you have to go through in our in our culture, and not everybody goes through this, mm. and so there isn't a level of sensitivity. But what happened for me in elementary school continued. Okay, so I graduated from that school. If you look at my picture, I'm the only black in my graduating class, the only one, right? Fast forward, I go to American University, um, and by the way, because of feeling less than while attending elementary school, somewhere after that, coming into my high school years, there's a sense of, hot, you know, if I'm, if I'm in society not regarded as an equal, even if you say I'm an equal, but you don't treat me like an equal because I can't go to that school because I can't do this and because I can't do this, right? Then how do you equalize? Is it affirmative action? Is it, okay, there's some things we do sort of, you know, as a society, but there are things you have to do as an individual in that society because you're having the relationships. So for me, it was, all right, blacks are not considered to be as smart. At least that was the thinking in my head in elementary school. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why I can't come here, because you said I'm not smart enough. And by the way, our grades didn't drop. <laughs> we were A students. Um, so I don't know if that changed the heart of the principal or not, because we never had a follow-up. But I, my freshman year at American University, I'm the only black in an all-white class. Here we go again, right? First day of class, professor says, I want you to write a paper and pass it to the right, and we're going to let your in-class essay be read aloud. By your, by your peer? By your peer. So I'm the only black in the classroom, and that's probably a little bit of what happened in elementary school that's still there with you. You know, those things go down deep. Yeah, they don't, they don't leave you. So you figure, i got to write something. And during high school, um, I'd stay up late at night, I mean, we had some hardships where we were homeless for a period of time, lived on the street, um, lived in a shelter, uh, had a meal at McDonald's. You know, that's really hard, hard s stuff for us. Um, uh, we like a up, daily meal at McDonald's, <laughs> like that was yeah. your food. Yeah. A, a gift certificate to McDonald's, right? Yeah, essentially, I mean, the, the quick overview is um, we were on welfare for probably two years. So that's public assistance where you have powdered eggs, powdered uh, anything. You just go to this place and you get powder and you pour water in it and that's breakfast. Um, and we lived like that for a couple of years. Um, we, after my mom got a job, so we got off welfare. And, um, but there was a period of time on hard times again, we were homeless, um, lived on the street for a hot minute, uh, then ended up in a shelter. While in the shelter, my mom went to Washington School for Secretaries. When the shelter learned that she was educating herself, they said, you either have to leave the shelter or quit getting educated. Mm -hmm. So that process somehow, I guess it's maybe the thought was, if you're getting an education, then you can't have free rent. You need to have a job paying for it. But my mom raising two boys couldn't right. do that. So this, it, there's some flaws. How do you really yeah, make this work? Sure. So um, we ended up living in a home um, in a room that was... I don't know, maybe six by eight. There was a twin bed. My brother and I slept opposite each other in that twin bed. My mom slept in a chair with her feet up on the bed where we were. And there was a trash can lid that was sandwiched between our, the headboard of that twin bed and the wall because of the hole to keep the rat out. Um, and eventually I slept in the front room downstairs but I usually couldn't get access to it till 2 a.m. in the morning because the woman of the, the, who owned the house had a church meeting that went until 2 in the morning. So I'd sit up and read vocabulary words from a dictionary, from a word box. So you start learning words like quaquaversal, sesquipedalian, 
uh, velocipede, um, just, just words that you don't use every day. But it was part of my equalizer. It was the way right. I could enter into, I could leave my neighborhood from the hood and go to an all white and know that people, I'm thinking in my mind, because I'm black, you think less of me, so I've got to do something that equalizes me, right. so I'm going to use vocabulary. I'm going to overcompensate exactly. my, yeah, with my language to, Exactly, yeah, right. and it, it, it was just weird, you know, so I remember the first day in class, you're writing a paper, like, in the midst of coagulating pandemonium and vociferous cry, you know, like, and so the girl beside me is having to read my paper out loud, and she keeps telling my shoulder, could you pronounce this? Could you pronounce this word? <laughs> uh, what's this word? Intelligentsia? Yeah, okay. And then what's this word right here? So it's she, she just stumbled every sentence in something that probably didn't make a lot of sense, but the whole point was, I'm just as smart as you, but you're overcompensating, and everybody would be like, who on earth is this guy? Right. Yeah. So that's the stuff that a black person has to live in. For me, it's vocabulary. For other people, it's something different. Can I, I you know, Seth, I mean, I, when I think of Donnell's story, Donnell and I have been friends a long time. And um, I, it's, it's a great example when getting back to the question of how, what about a, when, you're, when you're looking at politics and your brother in Christ, how do, you, how do you walk through something like that together? For me, who grew up in a, predominantly very middle income, low, middle to lower income white culture in Texas, uh, who had really zero black friends growing up, um, very few interaction with African Americans. I mean, when you and I became friends, Donnell, I brought you, I remember bringing you out to speak that weekend, mm -hmm. uh, right after Obama was elected. And, um, we, I took you to a barbecue restaurant, if you yeah, remember, I remember we were sitting in this barbecue restaurant in Texas and, um, and he looks around. I said, what are you looking at? And if you'll remember this, he said, I'm the only brother in the room. Yep. Like, there's, no, there's no other black people at this, at, this, uh, at, yep. this, at this barbecue place. And it was one of the first times I realized, man, I wonder what that's like. Yeah. I wonder what that's like to be yeah. the only one like me in the room. Because normally there's lots of people in the rooms I'm in, most everybody is like me. Yeah. And as we've grown in our friendship, um, you shared some of these stories with me and other stories uh, that have helped me understand your experience. That is, you know, growing up in Washington, you see a far cry from growing up in West Texas. Yeah. And because of that, when I hear political things, whether it's Trump or whether it's Obama or whether it's whoever's leading at the time, I hear it differently now because yep. I have such a, I have a brother in Christ who shared his experiences with me. Yeah. And because of that, I'm sensitive in a different level in an area I wasn't aware of. And I think because many people don't have that f a friendship like that, or maybe they're, they're pretty isolated geographically or whatever, they, they're, not, they're, they, they're not sensitive to some of those yeah. same things maybe. You know, so here's what comes to mind. I'm, I referenced Paul earlier and really just the revelation he had. And I say that not just information, but revelation about God's heart for the nations and this idea of Jew and Gentile being the same before God and that the Jews are first, but not only right. um, in terms of the exportation of the gospel. Well, look at Peter. I love Simon Peter. And I think there would be an appeal to say, look at his journey and then ask ourselves, how might that apply to us? Because Simon Peter is not just someone who has grown up in a culture 
that is enmeshed in racism, ethnic tension and strife, the Jews and Gentiles, right? Not cowboys and Indians. He grew up playing Jews and Gentiles, right? That's what he would have played. He ate fish all the time. Um, this is just his way of thinking, right? It speaks to the people who've grown up in parts of America where culturally there's no sensitivity, there's no awareness because they've never even met someone or known someone like that. Right. But here's this moment where now he's radically encountered by God. His life is being changed. And he's a follower of Jesus. He's committed to him. But there's still this thing down inside of him that needs some work. Yeah. And we see the need for it because as he's with Jesus and then obviously post-resurrection, he's a leader in the church. And you watch this moment that happens. There's a moment where a man who has been ill, paralyzed for eight years of his life, Aeneas, and Peter has the opportunity to go and pray with him. And Aeneas is healed. I mean, I can't imagine being present for a man who's a paralytic for eight years. And one word from God spoken through Peter changes his life forever. That then moves the scene to, oh, send for Peter. And then he goes down um, to Joppa. And, you know, there is a woman who has died, um, Tabitha, Dorcas. And these women are showing all the things she's made and her heart for the poor. And so he walks in. Aeneas is a Jewish guy. Dorcas is a Jewish woman. He walks in, he closes the door, he kneels down, he talks to God, and in a single word, the power of God happens, and this dead woman comes back to life. Amazing. That'd be a good day. I just, like, amazing. And then the scene changes again. You've had two miracles back to back, and now here comes the third, and probably the biggest one in my mind. He's staying with Simon the Tanner. He goes up on the roof, he's hungry, he just falls into this trance-like moment, and it says, in a vision, uh, something that appeared to be like a sheet is lowered with four corners, and it opens, and it has all these animals on it. And you know what's missing? There's no fish on it. The one thing he would have been hungry for to enjoy and looking mm. forward to, everything, there's pig, there's, you know, everything is on there, goat, you know, deer, but there's no fish. And God says, you hungry? Arise, kill, and eat. And he goes, no. No. Oh, yeah, they're all unclean. Yeah, yeah they're animals. all unclean. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never eaten anything clean. What I call clean. And it happens three times. And it takes three times. Like, there's just one word, and he goes to Neas. One word, and he goes to Dorcas. It takes three times just to get him to go, I'm not sure what this means. Yeah, that's I, right. Uh, I have amazing clarity when it comes to seeing a paralytic who's Jewish get healed. I have amazing clarity when there's a Jewish dead woman. But when it comes to a non-Jew who isn't even sick, I'm really not sure what to do. I, what, uh, uh, it's, it's, wait. And so he, the good thing is he goes. It's the, the people come from a man named Cornelius, mm -hmm. non-Jew. Cornelius is at the Lord's direction, sends for him to come there. And he would have been reluctant and reticent to go. No reticence with the Jewish paralyzed man. No reticence with yep. the Jewish dead woman. Yep. Reticence with the guy who's not paralyzed, not dead, but he's not a Jew. So I'm reticent to go. Yeah. And But the good thing is God worked in his heart. He did go. 
And when he gets there, he walks in, Cornelius meets him, and he walks in and he sees all these people, and he says something that he can only say because he goes, now I know. And I think what blacks in America desire for whites in America, particularly Christians, is for you to say, now I know. And you never come to the now I know moment if you only have Aeneas, if you only have Dorcas, right. and there's no room for Cornelius. Yeah. You've got to have the third conversation. That's a good word. Were you writing that one down? Yeah, I needed. Yeah, that was, that was tremendous. That's really good. I think that's really powerful. I remember, I remember the first couple times I was tipped off to there was multiple worlds happening within hours. Mm. Um, the first one was actually in high school. I had a friend of mine, longtime friend of mine. He was a black guy. We were both on the football team together, and after practice, one of our coaches uh, came up to us. We were walking together, hanging out, uh, just goofing around. And he came up to us, and he was, he was a black coach. He was one of our black coaches on, on the football team. And he said he wanted to talk to my friend. And uh, so, okay. So I was just sitting there hanging around, you know, it's just no big deal. And he looked at me and said, excuse me, like, this is a private conversation, you know, in a really strong way, like mm -hmm. really awkward. Okay. So I actually just walked around the corner. But I listened in. I'm like, what? Is he in trouble? He's my friend. I was like, you know. But the way he started talking to him mm -hmm. was different than I'd ever heard him talk before. Right. The way a black man spoke to a black young man yep. was different. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't be, a, you know, a part of this moment. You mm -hmm. know, this is, I need to have a different level of connection to him. Yeah. And, uh, and I just, this was, it was weird. It was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what? What's going on? What's yep. going on here? Uh, my second moment was at Oregon State University, and uh, I was walking on campus with another black friend of mine. And um, as we were just walking randomly through the middle of campus, he looks up at a, another black guy who's walking our way and gives him a nod. And uh, we walked past him. I said, oh, who is that? He says, I don't know. <laughs> you, That's right. He said, you nodded at each other. It's our universal greeting. You nodded. He said, I, I don't know what it is. So. But you nodded, and he nodded back. Yeah. And like you knew each other. You looked in each other's eyes. I saw a connection. Yeah. And he's like, well, the, if you would notice, there's not a ton of black people walking around this university. Mm -hmm. And whenever we see each other, we always nod. And I was like, really? And, I, and so I watched for it every time. And sure enough, and pretty much everywhere I've been, I've seen that. Like, if, especially if it's a, a white majority kind of place, yeah. I'll see black people not. Clearly, there's a connection there to say, like, we're in a world. Yep. Uh, we're in our own world here that we don't fully connect with the other world going on. And so yeah. I, I think I've just realized how important it is to have your Cornelius moments. God was very gracious in my life to provide them. And it's not easy to do in a place like Corvallis, but I feel like God engineered even my salvation yeah. uh, to expose me to the realm of the other, especially mm -hmm. the African-American experience. And I'm zero expert on it, but all you need is enough to know that everything I see and perceive is not all of the way things are. It's not right. all of reality. And that just produces the, enough of a sliver of humility to be able to, you know, listen to whether it's political, cultural, pop culture, um, or even especially within the church world. And when you're doing discipleship, to be sensitive to the reality that there are other voices and realities and opinions that need to be valued, that need to be heard. And mine needs it. Mine, I can't just supersede over any given moment because I can't I can't speak for everyone and That's their good. experience and what life what life is like and we just can't we just can't make those assumptions yeah. so i think that for me the ele the election was just heartbreaking um i mean uh, politically i'm torn 
But I think in terms of just relationally, it was just heartbreaking to see the splits and the divisions and I get it. And there's people that I think that are wrong, but yet I'm still compassionate and I understand where they're coming from on both sides Mm -hmm. for that matter. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's really painful, but I always feel like it's a win when I'm in the same room with the other and we're able to stay in in that tension and talk things through Um, and to I mean, it was, it's really humbling. I don't know if you felt this way, Daniel, but, but yesterday when Donnell even asked that question, I mean, the fact that you, a man that both of us like deeply respect would ask us that yeah. question and then sit and listen to us answer, mm. <laughs> answer the question, uh, you know, you just feel this, this yeah. awe of like, well, who are we? Like, it feels like we need to listen more than we need to be contributing to this. Well, I think that's the key. I, I mean, the key is listening and, um, and listening to other stories and, you know, one of the values in our congregation that we just hold so dear is, in, is intentionality. And um, building friends and building friendships is something you intentionally engage in. It's not a passive thing. It's, right. an, it's an active thing. Uh, to, it can happen build, just more or less it can. passively. Sure. I mean, there, there's organic friendships that just kind of happen. It often does. Um, but to maintain that, you really to maintain a friendship. I mean, uh, normally there's some intentionality like, Hey, I'm, you know, you, you have a good friend move far away. I mean, you gotta be intentional at keeping that friend. That's right. Um, and so to, to understand other people's perspective and stories, you have to be intentional and listen, you know, um, I, I, it's one of the things I've enjoyed about our friendship, Donnell is being able to hear your, hear your experiences and it's opened up my eyes uh, other friends as well um, that we have, mutual friends that have opened up my eyes as we've intentionally grown in our friendship to get to gain a perspective and an understanding. Um, and I think to, I think that it's so in, in the body of Christ. If we would be intentional about building friendships and listening to others, man, it could make such a significant difference. But yeah. also an awareness of. Um, of our own experience and an awareness of our own sin nature. I mean, for me, uh, growing up in a white community and in a white world, as I shared with you guys yesterday, one of my first um, really interactions with uh, African-Americans was when I was a a kid and I'm uh, working outside this coffee shop giving samples as a a young uh, high school student. And uh, three African-American guys come up and take a sample and this coffee that I'm giving out at the mall. This is the local mall. And they spit this coffee right in my face mm-hmm. and then laugh. They're just goofing around walk off like any teenager would do. Mm-hmm. Well, not like, not like any teenager. Well, I mean, lots of teenagers do crazy stuff. Well, you know, they're just being rambunctious, you know. Yeah, and, sure. um, you know, I grew up, I, I wasn't, I'm not a racist. I mean, I, I didn't have any black friends, but... Oh, man, I was I was for the North in the in the uh, in when I the watched Civil War? The, the were you pro North? <laughs> I, I think that's about as low as you can go. The blue and the gray, man. I was blue all we're the way. We're gonna have to raise I the mean, bar. You have to be a little bit more than pro was, North. I yeah. was I was uh, I, I was because I was I just couldn't. I was very sensitive to the issues of slavery and those things. I just couldn't believe that our nation had participated in that. I was, so I didn't view right. myself. You were telling a story racism. yesterday of just how emotional you would get every time you would oh, hear about the racism of our past and yes, history. It I deeply mean, would yeah. affect you. It would, it affected me deeply. Yeah. And so I just didn't. So, I mean, if you were to say, Hey, are you racist? Absolutely. 
really not. I mean, I'm just the most sensitive to it. Mm. But I didn't have any black friends. I didn't have any shared experiences. I did. I mean, I never listened to any stories of, of, of my black friends where they came. I mean, I didn't have any. And so this is one of my first experiences. I remember going upstairs at our at this place. I mean, I had coffee all over me. I'm wiping it off. I'm cleaning up. And there, I mean, in my mind, I just grew so angry at those kids in that moment. Mm-hmm. And the N-word, it came to my mind. I said it in my mind and even kind of mumbled it under my breath. Nobody was around. It was just me. But in that moment, I was there was, there was shame and conviction. I had a relationship with God. There was conviction from the Holy Spirit. Like, why, why would you pick that? Yeah, where did that so come from? Where did that, that come, did that come yeah. from? Mm-hmm. And the reality of it is we all have a sin nature in us yeah. that outside of Christ, uh, there is all kinds of corruption and sin yeah. in us that can come out of yeah. our mouth and that, that that's there in the heart. And man, it, that awareness was a little scary to me. Um, and also something I had to repent of in that moment going, this isn't who I am or who I want to be, but, but it was there. And I think so an awareness of the potential of our sin nature, but also an intentionality of finding those shared experiences, finding those friendships to build on can really go a long way in uh, the body of Christ, understanding one another with some of these issues. I think it was, I think it was GK Chesterton was, he had the famous quote. He's a very quotable guy in general, but I think he was asked by a reporter or something at what point, uh, what is the, I think it was, what's the greatest problem with Christianity today, Mm. uh, in the world today. And his answer was, dear sir, I am Mm. that the idea that you're saying, right. And this is where I think the Christian message has, it has to become more prominent in, 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 in public conscience and even just cultural life. I mean, it really has such a preservation healthy because it points to the deepest root of problem being internal and in the heart. Mm -hmm. I think the second you start locating externally in the other, you are going down a very dark and scary road very, very quickly. And, uh, and that's just what that is. I mean, it's one of the things why I hold, you know, to Jesus and I hold to the scriptures and a very conservative view of even the scriptures because it just explains me so well and my heart so well. And, uh, if, if things don't happen from the inside out and that's not negating the need for social addressing of issues. And I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that, but if you do that aside from addressing on the individual level, your heart and how, when under pressure or in the right circumstances, some really gross stuff can come out of it. And that's true of all of us. Um, we're, we're never actually going to get anywhere. We're all going to become a society of victims that have caricatured the other side. Yeah. And there's going to be no room for conversation, certainly no room for, for friendship. Sure. And, and no one's actually going to become the kind of people that God has actually made us to be. Absolutely. I really think that, um, you know, this recent election did not cause the pain in our nation. It just it re- exposed it. Just revealed it. Yeah. Um, in a, at another level. Yeah. And this pain point is so deep that um, I think there's some things that, that really are essential. Um, I think it's important for us to recognize that these things are deeply enmeshed in us, deeply enmeshed in our culture. And um, they're not just going to go away. Um, you just can't say, well, you know, some of my best friends are black or that it's, it's deeper than that. There has to be moments where we 
we actually are intentional about, God, what's at the core of this? You know, what, what do you really intend? So I think one thing I would encourage is people to say to themselves, you know, if you, if you are completely unaware or like, I think Daniel, what you said, there are probably many people would identify with the fact that, you know, I didn't have any black friends at all. I didn't think there was anything in me at all, but then here's this moment that happens and something comes up. So just assume maybe you haven't had a moment just to reveal something's there. Don't just say, I'm fine, you know, but be intentional and say, let's sit down and have a conversation. I think it's helpful for, you know, leaders who are white, people who are white to say to blacks, you know, um, I have no idea whether or not things I say or do are offensive to you. I, I don't know if you regard me as someone who you feel close to, but realize there's, there's just things that I don't get. Maybe I haven't had a moment with you where you can say, yep, I know you know now as much as possible, but to open that door and have intentional conversations to say, I just want to invite you to be able to, to talk to me about your life, talk to me about your experiences. What is do you think I need to understand that I don't understand and vice versa that it, and, and when you begin those dialogues, because I think what happens so, so many times you talked about being Seth being in a moment where there was a conversation that was happening between two blacks and you were uninvited to be there. You know, I have had moments where I sit, in a room with people and they're all black. And there are things that are spoken in that moment where I go, if someone was white here, I wonder if they would say that. Mm. And I've been in moments where everyone's mm. all white. Yeah. And their level of comfort with me is very high. Right. And they'll say things yeah. and I kind of go, mm. I wonder if they would say that if a different black person was here yeah. or and so there's a conversation happening over here in this room, and there's a conversation happening over here in this room, yeah. but it's two different rooms. Yeah. How do we say, hey, guys, there's a bigger room over here that actually can hold all of us, and let's sit there and say, we're going to have a conversation, and we're going to create a process that allows us to engage to say, if at any moment something I say is offensive or uh, it seems to be an expression of ignorance or arrogance, whatever, just hit pause and say, can I speak to that for a moment? Here's what I want you to understand. When you make that comment, tell me what you're thinking. Well, I, this is all I'm thinking. Okay, here's how it's heard. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I know. Yeah. So next time you're there, be aware because if I don't say something to you about it, you'll just notice there are people who were talking to you who now aren't anymore and they didn't bother to tell you something you said was offensive. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's where it's, it's said in ignorance. It's just unknown. But I think there needs to be a responsibility to say, hey, we're friends. Let me talk to you about this. Absolutely. Here's how that comes off. If you say, hey, boy, the word Ooh, boy. Yeah. Or, if, you know, somebody's preaching a great message, man, that boy knocked it out the park. Well, well, <laughs> there's just history behind the word boy. boy. Yeah. That sure. you're not intending, but I can't, it's hard not to hear it through the lens of that. Right. And I don't know if when you say it, you mean it like this, or you mean it like you would say it to That's anybody. Right. So let's just talk about that. It just, it could be something that simple, but because of the history. Yeah. What, I don't know, we, we were doing okay, and then he just stopped. I don't know what happened. Yeah. You called him a boy. I, oh, 
that's a derogatory. I didn't know that boy was derogatory. Well, it's not in the dictionary, but it is yeah. in America. That's right. When referred to a black man. So it's just learning sensitivity and wouldn't ways. You, wouldn't you say that there's a level of relationship and grace in that yeah. situation that... A lot that, of grace. That depends on how... Yeah. Uh, the relationship and the ideology that someone has. Yes. How that would be received or how... Um, the, how where you find that line between political correctness right. uh, and almost legalism, right. a, a new kind of religion of, of political correctness right. and a sensitivity to someone to go, I want to be sensitive and I want to I want to hear that because I don't want to I don't want to bring up these old wounds. Yeah. And I, because I, I do think like not just on that issue, but what I've seen with not this just election, but some of these issues, too, in our area, in our context ideology has been lifted up as a god. Um, there's ideology, whether it's liberal ideology, conservative ideology, mm-hmm. and um, the, the ideology is a really bad god, and ideology uh, is, is really a pretty tough uh, worldview as a believer we are to have a biblical worldview. And so if we have a biblical worldview with our brother and sister, there's a tendency to assume the best in what they say, but also to correct them when they misstep and and go over boundaries. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree completely because you can get all the words right and your heart still be wrong. That's right. Right. And so at the end of the day, it's not helping me with, okay, what words are on the list and what words are not on the list and what should I say, what should I not say? Because if it's only... uh, behavior modification or some kind of outward practice and mm-hmm. it never gets to the heart, I would much rather the heart be right and the words be wrong. Yes. Because then when I hear you speak, I know your heart. And so I'm not questioning why you said what you did. That's right. And therefore, if if I ask a question, I'm not questioning. I'm just like, hey, we're good. But don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> or, look, with me, that's cool. But I wouldn't recommend that. When you get, like up, Sunday, when you get up Sunday morning or when you go. Yeah, from the pulpit, my yeah, goodness. When you go there, this to me, that's good friendship. I'm not going to let you get that's up and do something that's going to harm that you, you think is helpful. You Stinky and Ray Ray. Right. You yeah. know, I don't want that to be. Uh, I want you to be able to be your level best, which means are you sensitive enough to the point where you know that in a given moment how you're expressing yourself is going to be helpful, not harmful. And even if you can feel in the moment something I said is off, you actually have the the presence of mind and sensitivity kind of go, I see something on some of your faces, so I think I may have said something. Yeah. Can you help me with that? Yeah. Just opening it up makes people breathe and go, oh, wow. We don't have a monster in the room. We got somebody who will listen and we can talk and think things through. Yeah. I think also for for blacks, you cannot, because of the stereotypes enmeshed in our society, look at every white person and lump them into this category. That is wrong. Mm. I think that's very wrong to do. You can't just go, oh, because you're white, you're this. Not true. You wouldn't accept that of all blacks. You can't accept that of all whites. Good. I think the face of racism has no color. And you, there just has to be something where you, you know, you as a black person have to be 
sensitive as well. You've got to be open-minded. You've got to be intentional. You got to be, you can't lump everybody into the same category. Yeah, it's right? really dangerous to do. It, it is. So yeah. I've got to, when I meet white people, I don't assume things about them. Right. Right. And I want to, I want to relate to a person like God made color. So I'm, my goal is not to be colorblind. Yeah. My goal is to be able to see you beyond the stereotypes, see you beyond pigmentation, see you beyond ethnicity, appreciate ethnicity and detach it from the stereotypes and see the spirit of God that's in you because you've been made in the image of God just like me. So at the core of you is the same core that is in me. And so I want to be able to relate in that way. I like the idea. I don't know how you feel about this, but I like the idea that, you know, your color, if you will, influences who you are, but it does not define who you are. Right. Um, so I say this to my church, and I've said it more than once. I am a black man. In my church, there are a lot of black people, but there's probably 20 different nations that are representative, but we're pr pr predominantly black. Yeah. I said, I'm a black man, and I love being black. I would not want to be anything else. I know there are white people who want to be black. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a white person in my church say to me, I love this church, and I love you, and I don't like white people. And I said, okay, have you looked in the mirror? Um, <laughs> you, you actually are white. I think I, I went to middle school with a few of them, yeah. actually. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, uh, we actually at our church love white people, and we want white people to be a part yeah. of our church. But if you are white and don't like white people, you're not helping us. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but my, the, the point I'm really getting at is, um, it, you know, the... I think I lost my, my train of thought. Where were we? Where well, I was talking about uh, color, not maybe totally defining you. Yes. So but. I tell my church, listen, I'm a black man. I love being a black man, right? Don't want to be anything other than being a black man. But my identity is not rooted in my ethnicity. That's right. My identity is rooted in Jesus, that I am made in my the creator. image yep. and right. likeness yes. of my creator. 100%. So that identity is what makes me who I am. Everything else is secondary. Yeah. And tertiary. it all has an influence. It does. But so, it cannot be ident no, identity level. No. I love There's something about Paul that allowed him to say, listen, I become all things to all people that I might win some. Win them to who? Jesus. Yeah. My creator. That's right. In whose image I've been made. That's my true identity. Right. It's Christ, right? Uh, Peter, Petra, he's a chip off the old rock or block, whatever, right? So my whole thing is, if Paul can say, I became all things to all people, and he was born culturally a Jew, yet he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. How is it that he who is a Jew says, I became like the Jews, unless he understood he was something greater than being Jewish? Yes. So then I borrow that and go, I'm in Christ, and I am black. But to the blacks, I became as black. But I'm greater than that. Yeah. But I understand the mindset of a black person who their identity is rooted in their ethnicity, not rooted in Christ. Right. I know how to relate to them as a black to a black. Mm. But the idea is, but not being someone whose identity is rooted in it. Right. And hopefully winning them to the point of where your identity is greater than your ethnicity. And really what you're saying is you're not demeaning being black. Not you at know, all. In the sense of like a white supremacy, greater, lesser than. I mean, the same is true of me. Like my... 
my whiteness is lesser compared to my right. Christ-likeness. Exactly. You know, being in Christ. That yeah. is that is the overarching identity. Yeah. Who I am and who I'm called to grow up into. And uh, and obviously there's going to be an influence of my family of origin and my cultural background and everything else is going to play a role that even in godly ways is going to shape how I think. But I have to root out what's godly and what's ungodly and, and my, uh, pursue something greater in the process. Exactly. And I think because my identity is not rooted in my ethnicity, but my identity is rooted in Christ, probably the true expression of what God intended in my ethnicity yeah. is more pure. That's true. Than it would be if it were not rooted in him. Yeah. yeah. I think a good reminder of the fact of this it is this is simple, but it can be hard. Um, in to to be reminded if if Peter himself had to be reminded by Paul, Peter and other Galatians, disciples yeah, had, to had to be to call him out. be reminded by him that hey, our identity is in Christ; it's not in our ethnicity. Yeah. Um, as Paul, Peter, and others started to pull away from uh, from the Gentiles, and yep. Paul says, hey, 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 this isn't. Remember who we are and who we're grafted into, and right. who. And so I, I think that's a good reminder of us that that there is opposition and there is sin that's very real. And even um, the apostles themselves had to be reminded that this is something to contend for. And uh, as Paul did, there's times that we have to give account to our brothers and sisters to say, hey, it's not okay to treat people that way. It's not okay to say those things. It's not okay to dis... Uh, to pull away from fellowship. We need to draw into one another because our common identity is Christ. It is not our ethnicity. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a, our ethnicity is a beautiful, wonderful thing, but it's, but it's not what binds us together. It's Christ that binds us together. And so while that is a true in our identity, it's also true of what we're to remind one another uh, at moments. And, um, and we're reminded that Paul did that with Peter. And, and sometimes we're we may be the Peter that are called to be reminded of this mm -hmm. and or the Paul that are, that is calling others to this as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. I think to try to kind of wrap this thing up and, and pull this whole thing together, we began with a, obviously a very volatile political question. And I don't think we came up with a whole lot of political answers. I don't have any easy answers for this whole for this whole thing. But, uh, you know, I do think what's important, a takeaway for Christians, that I think is really important is Jesus has to be the king and everything else is subservient to that. And I, we have to be able to remain, I think, prophetically critical of any leader, president or not. Uh, if they're doing good things, great. If, there's, if they're not doing good things or if they're saying hurtful or harmful things, I don't think we can be so far politically in bed with anyone that we lose our prophetic voice to call out truth mm -hmm. in a given moment. And that, that is not just true of the current president. That needs to be true of anyone, and we, I unfortunately I think Christianity has damaged a little bit of her of her witness, um, but I'm I'm really hoping that that people will see far than just policy positions or political persuasions or right or left where you lean on the spectrum. I think Christianity offers up the opportunity for genuine relationships and connection to find compassion and empathy and understanding, even if you don't find full agreement. Um, and I think that that's a place. That's a really good place to be, and I don't think that can be minimized or trivialized. Um, and uh, and I'm hoping that the church really rises up and comes to the plate and becomes a beacon of hope and, and light in this area because I the culture is having a very hard time with it now. Yeah. So I think there's real opportunities here. That's yeah. Good. Any final thoughts you guys want to offer as we as we sign off? 
I think Ma, I'll give you the final word, D. I, but I, I would, I would just say, you know, Jesus' prayer: um, "Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven." We know that in heaven, that there is um, going to be every, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, yeah. every nation, and um, man, as as that is in heaven, let that be on earth. Jesus is the one that um, through whom God is uniting all things in heaven and all things on earth. It is through Christ. Uh, Ephesians teaches us this. And so um, I think the gospel is more than your ticket to heaven. It's also also what unites uh, ethnicities and brothers and sisters and coworkers and classmates and on campus. And uh, man, I think as we surrender to Christ, as we follow him, as you said, um, then we will begin to see him unite uh, things here on earth um, through him and uh, including this, ra- this racial tension. I think he's the answer. And I think, uh, I think he, his kingdom wants to usher in uh, a unity that comes only through him. So I'm grateful yeah. uh, to be a part of that kingdom. Yeah. yeah. I'm so glad you um, made reference to that. I have the same thought on my heart. There's one moment where, um, you know, Jesus has come to Samaria. He's met a woman at a well. Um, Basically, Jesus was called a Samaritan, would have been a racial slur. And um, it was such a, you know, a big deal. But then later on, you've got the uh, Sons of Thunder, James and John, when they're trying to go through Samaria, and this is a moment where he goes, they, they don't want Jesus to come through, and they said, you want us to call down fire on them? And he goes, you don't know what spirit you're of, right? So that's really the issue. Um, we need to examine our hearts and realize, what spirit am I of? Yeah. Right, when, when I have something in my heart against someone that God loves, and it means we're missing that revelation that John had when he said, you know, I saw in heaven a multitude of people that mm. no one could number. Yeah. It was immeasurable. And he said something. And the fact that he states it is really important because I think he's saying, this isn't something I normally would see. This isn't something that I grew up with in my own culture. But I'm getting to peer into heaven. And let me tell you what I see. It is people from every nation, every tribe, every yeah. tongue, every language. And they're all worshiping God at the center. That this is what heaven is. So when we get a picture of that in our hearts, then we get to live it out in a world that is radically different from that and kind of go, we get to bring a piece of heaven on earth by being people who live out what we see in eternity. That's great. Yeah. I love it. You guys, this is so fun. Donnell, Daniel, love you guys so much. Respect you. This was a good time. Absolutely. Thanks, Seth. Love you, man. Bye.